Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We're going to go through the passage. We'll pray, and then I'll explain why I had you do that interesting activity. Okay. It says in verse 16, So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let us pray together. And dear Lord, as we come before you right now, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, we know that something that we struggle with as uh, young people is legalism. We're always trying to measure up or trying to do things in order to be loved, whether it's by you or whether it's by people. And Lord, we just pray tonight that we would be able to step into the reality, Lord, that we have your favor when we, when we accepted your son, when we turned away from our sins. And we pray, Lord, that tonight that people would sense that freedom today and not continually beat themselves up with that guilt and with that shame. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had you discuss just now what is your ideal date and what would be your ideal thing to do for your anniversary. And so maybe you're thinking of things like my ideal date is something simple like going to the movies or going to a concert. But obviously, something that you wouldn't do is um, for your anniversary, you wouldn't do the same thing as you would for a date, right? You would do something a little bit more extravagant if you're married one day in the future. Like, depending on how long you've been married, you actually might do something even more extravagant than your average date. So I would imagine that if you're going on a date, some people like to do it simple. Some people want something special like a candlelight dinner by the beach. And, like, the person that you're dating is really rich, so they pay for everything. Or, I don't know. And then there's some people that they're like, I could care less. We could go to McDonald's. Men, if the woman is content with McDonald's, that's probably a keeper. Just saying. <laughs> but, uh, but on top of that, we know that it would be weird if all you did as the man, especially since you're the planner, if you planned for your anniversary to go to McDonald's, that would be kind of strange be kind of weird. So maybe you want to do something extravagant and you're thinking, all right, for our 10-year anniversary, what we're going to do is we're going to go and fly over to Europe or we're going to go to France and see the Eiffel Tower. We're going to be able to eat whatever French people eat in the morning, escargot, snail. Do they eat that in the morning? Maybe. And you're going to think of something extravagant, right? But here's the thing. Shh, shh. Pay attention. The whole point of your anniversary is to commemorate the relationship that you have between one another. It'd be very strange if you got, up, you got caught up in so much of the details that you literally left the person at home. Like, 
Let's, let's say that we actually planned an anniversary in France. And then, like, you, you geared up. You, like, got the entire week planned out. And it's going to be amazing. And then, like, you go for the airport. And you're, like, you just got to be on time. And, like, your wife's running late. And you're, like, well, I'll leave you at home. We got to go. We got to make this happen. And you just leave. Like, that would be missing the point, right? Like, you, could, you would agree that if you left your spouse at home, the whole vacation is for naught. Doesn't matter how well you plan. Doesn't matter like what, it's not the thought that counts in that, in that case, right? And in the same sense, I think what happens is many of us as Christians can be so focused on the work we do for God that we miss out on God altogether. So many of us will set up all these different plans and engagements and things we'll do for God and we'll be so focused on the work and on the doing that we miss out on the relationship with God all together. Perfect example is Christmas. We set an entire day, or perhaps two days, if you do Christmas Eve and, and Christmas, two days aside to commemorate Jesus, and yet so much, of a, so much of it is wrapped up in, I have to make family plans, I have to set things aside, and I have to buy presents for all my family members, but I don't have any money, so I have to steal some people's stuff, and then wrap it up, and then re-gift it or something. I'm just kidding. But you, you sometimes can get burnt out in the festival itself and not in the substance itself. Well, actually, what you see right here in, in verse 16 is Paul is telling the Colossian people, he says, don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. So all these Jewish festivals, all the rituals they had, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In other words, he's saying, if you are so focused on doing these festivals, these things that you do, and you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point. You know, there are many Jewish groups that actually what they'll do is they'll set aside their Saturday, their Sabbath day, and they'll be so, so religious about it that they won't even push buttons on an elevator because they believe that's work. And, and God said, don't work on the Sabbath. But the whole point of the Sabbath in the Bible, a day of rest, is so that you can get rest, not so it's more work for you. And if you avoid pressing the button on the elevator and you have to walk up a flight of stairs, which one is more work? At least that's what I would think. But you have all these different rituals that you do in order to make sure that you're following the rules. And that is missing the point. It's no longer about the rules as we're going to see in a little bit. But even with some things like communion, that's something that we do as a commemoration of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so communion being the time that we as believers in Jesus set aside a special time to bring forth bread or the matzah, the unleavened bread, and bring forth the wine or the grape juice. And then we partake of it together as a family. And by doing that, we remember Jesus' death on the cross and the fact that we have been resurrected to new life. But Jesus said about communion, he said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he said, this is my body which is given for you when he broke the bread. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So it's possible when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that we could forget him as we are doing it. Because we're focused on the work and we're not focused on the meeting with Jesus. And this is exactly what happened with the Corinthian church. If you remember that Paul the Apostle wrote a letter to this church at Corinth. And they were missing the entire point of communion. And so what, ha what was happening, it was, it was so bad because they were getting together and some people were just gorging out. And they were just eating up all the stuff they could when they gathered together to partake of the Lord's table and communion and they're just eating all the bread eating all the whatever was there and getting drunk too because they were using real wine in those days 
And so Paul was just like, what is going on? This is shameful that you guys would hoard all the food yourselves. And there's some people going hungry when you're supposed to be a giant family working together. And it seems like some of you, as you are supposed to be remembering Jesus' death on the cross, are becoming proud and arrogant and selfish. How can you commit the act of selflessness while you have the heart of selfishness? So Paul even goes as far as to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, he says, Now in giving these instructions about communion, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So what he actually says is, it's so bad, the communion thing that you're doing is so bad, it's better if you had stayed at home. Can you imagine Paul telling us that? He's like, you guys cause more harm when you come to church, when you come to Impact, than when you stay at home. So just stay at home. Don't come to Impact. Don't come to youth group. Don't come to church. You stay at home because you have things that you have to deal with. I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying like Paul said that to the church at one point in time. That's, that's some pretty harsh words. And the reason he said that is because they have forgotten Jesus. And if you forgot Jesus in your gathering, then why did you gather together in the first place? That's the whole point behind the Bible challenge um, that when Pastor Lloyd, his heart behind it, when he told the entire church, told us to start reading through the Bible in a year together as a church, it's because people come to church and you expect them to talk about the things of God and we talk about everything but God, right? It's like after youth group is over, we talk about sports, we talk about like what we're going to do afterwards, we talk about silly stories, we talk about relationships, or sometimes we get distracted by gossip or about who's in the room or whatever, and we're talking about everything except what is glorifying to God. And these things should not be the case. But maybe you've never thought about this. Because since communion is kind of brought up in this passage, it might be interesting to think about this. How do you remember Jesus in communion? Have you ever thought about that? Or how about this question? Like most of us have taken communion at some point in our lives. Or maybe you grew up Catholic and you've taken, you know, the Eucharist. What are you actually supposed to do when you take the matzah and when you take the grape juice? What are you supposed to be thinking about? Are you supposed to be thinking about your sin? Are you supposed to be thinking about Jesus' death on the cross, the resurrection? Are you supposed to have like a moment of silence? What are you supposed to do? And I don't think many people answer that question. So you just kind of sit there and just like, all right, we did this because Jesus told us to do it. And awesome, you move on. But listen, if you don't know the reason why you're doing it, it becomes a dead ritual. And if we're just sitting there and we're just doing it just because we're supposed to, we've missed the entire point. So then what is the point of communion and why do we do it together and what are we supposed to be focused on and thinking about? Well, I would say this. We don't want to, in that moment and taking communion, beat ourselves up about our sins. To be repentant of our sin is great, but you're not supposed to have this moment where you're supposed to Force yourself to feel something. And we might do that, right? Like, I remember back in the day when the Passion of the Christ movie came out. Like, that's how young I was. That's how old I am. I take that back. That's how old I am. Because I was able to watch that movie in theaters. And, like, my parents let me because it's rated R. And sitting in that movie, I remember everyone else was crying. And I felt like I was supposed to cry. And I just don't cry. So I'm sitting there in the movie. And it's like, you were a jerk. I remember, like, certain people looking at me like, how could you not cry at that movie? I'm like, I... I don't know. It's a Mel Gibson movie. I just, I just didn't cry. You know, so like I remember trying to force myself in the movie. Like I have to feel sad. Otherwise I'm not a real Christian or something, you know. And maybe you feel that way in communion. But I would bring it back to this. Think about the, the analogy I used in the beginning about your anniversary. 
let's say that you actually do go to Paris or you go to France, which is Paris is in France. Let's say that you go to France for your anniversary and you have that candlelight dinner and you're sitting down. What are you supposed to be thinking about or feeling in that moment? Are you supposed to be like forcing yourself to feel love? It's been 10 years and like, all right, you're like concentrating, you're like looking into her eyes, you're like, I feel something. I don't know what it is. I think I feel good. No. If anything, you're just enjoying the moment. You just enjoy each other. That's the point. If you make the point about your feelings, you miss the point. Because the point is not about conjuring up emotions. The point is about simply spending time with that person that you're with. So there's nothing wrong in saying, you know what? We're not going to just make communion a thing where we just, you know, take some grape juice and eat some matzah. But we're going to set aside a service. And we're going to have a time of worship and prayer. And we're going to read the word. And in the midst of that, we're going to take communion to remember that we're all part of one body of Christ. And in that moment, you might not feel anything. You might. There might be a time where you're just like, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. You did forgive me of my sins. And you're focusing on that. What I like to do is I think about, like, what does it mean that Jesus' body was broken for us? And what does it mean that his blood covers our sins? Well, his body that was broken for me means that I don't have to beat myself up continually about my sin. I don't have to constantly feel guilty about what I've done because Jesus was beaten for me. By his stripes, I'm healed. And the fact that his blood covers my sins means that I don't have to atone for it. It means I'm going to heaven, which means that I am righteous right now and I have the power to live in this new reality. I have the power to live in this new life. And I just kind of think about that to myself quietly, but it'll change and it'll vary at different times. But the key is you don't have to force yourself to feel things in that moment. You might feel things, you might not. But the point is that you are obedient because you're meeting with Jesus and it's not about trying to conjure up those emotions. I hope... I hope that makes sense. And it's important for us to take times where we do have reflection on what Christ has done. And I think what happens is because we don't feel anything, we skip out. Because, oh, well, whenever I go to those worship nights, I don't really get anything out of it. You don't do it. Well, the whole point of worshiping God isn't for you. It's for God. Right? The reason why we praise God and give glory to God is because he's worth all, all of it. Not because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Right? The reason why you give applause, maybe your friend's uh, at a play and does an amazing job. The reason why you clap is not so you feel good about your clapping. And you don't clap so you're like, well, I don't want to feel awkward. The only person who's not clapping, hopefully you're clapping for your friend. Because what they did was worth your applause. And so... For us as believers, we need to recognize, maybe I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway, and my feelings and my emotions will follow, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you just commit to doing it, your heart will follow after that. I think about even our reading that we had in uh, the Bible challenge in Exodus. You have the manna, right? The manna. What is it? That's what manna means, actually, in Hebrew. And what they were told is they were supposed to gather enough manna on the floor because God provided for the Israelites as they're being brought out of Egypt into the promised land. In the meantime, in that wilderness season, he provided food for them to eat, which was manna, which is like bread in the middle of the wilderness. And so as they would take the bread, the manna, um, they were told on the Sabbath day they were not to work, so they had to store up enough manna for that Saturday, for that Sabbath. And if they didn't, they would have no manna to gather on that Saturday. 
But they weren't supposed to store up so much manna that would last them beyond the Saturday because it would begin to rot and there would be worms growing in the middle of it and whatever. So I think the key principle for us is this. There is a time that we should set apart to have a healthy reflection on God's provision. There are times that we should set aside to say, you know what, God? Even though we're not like, we have to obey the Sabbath, we have to be like, do no work on a specific day, otherwise we don't get in heaven. It's, it's a good principle, though, to say, I'm going to rest today and I'm going to focus on what God has done in the past, reflect on his healthy provision, and at the same time, I'm not going to hold on to it so much that I don't believe that he's not going to provide for me tomorrow. You need to do both those things. Yes, God has provided for me in the past, but I believe by faith that he will provide for me tomorrow. And so hopefully you're taking those times where whenever you do something for the Lord, you are making the point to be meeting with Jesus. The substance has to be of Christ, and that's what the Jewish people were missing. They had the Passover. They had Hanukkah. They had all these different rituals and festivals and all these things they were doing, but they missed the point, which was Jesus, and then it became dead religion. So here's your first point for this evening. It's this. What we do for God needs to be done with God. What we do for God needs to be done with God. Because if you do it for God and if it's not with God, then you miss God altogether. You could be doing all of those works, but it's the same thing as setting up an anniversary, a, a vacation, a date, and then missing out on that person because you left them at home. We want to make sure that God is with us in every single thing that we do. And so for us, I would say our application might be our devotions. As you're doing that Bible challenge, as you're spending time reading through Scripture, you're spending time with the Lord, we can make it into a legalistic thing where it's all about the work and I have to do it. If I don't do it, I'm not accepted by God and I have to do it because I'm supposed to or whatever your, you know, motive might be, if it's not to meet with Jesus, you missed it. Even Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So we have to be meeting with Jesus as we meet with uh, the scriptures, sitting down with those scriptures. And so what happened was, if you remember, the Colossian heresy, the thing that Paul was writing against is that, People were saying, uh, what you really need to do is you need to be making sure that you're holding those festivals, those Sabbaths, those holy moons, these different things that they told them to do so that you can really experience the full, the fullness, whatever that meant. So like this full experience of knowledge or this full experience of like being able to enter into this different dimension, whatever that heresy was, they're telling them that you're missing out on it unless you do the, these certain things. And so they play tricks on your mind saying like, well, you'll never know what will happen unless you start observing these certain festivals or whatever. And then he also talks about let no one judge you in food or drink. And so that kind of refers to the whole Nazarite thing. If you remember uh, in the Old Testament, if you want to set yourself apart for God, certain people like Samson would be a Nazarite, which means that you don't drink any alcohol whatsoever. You don't eat meat. You don't touch dead bodies. And so he would... Actually, grow out his hair. Remember, Samson wasn't allowed to cut his hair. So there are certain things that you would do as strict physical observances to say, I'm set apart for God. And everything else was taboo. And so what they were saying is, all of you have to keep on doing that. And so they'd say like things like, if you do certain things to your body or you, you do certain things, um, like eat certain foods, you're actually going to be judged by God. And you're going you're to miss out on his blessing, which we know is not 
true. Because as they focus on those things, they became proud. They said, I'm so much better than that person because I don't drink. I'm so much better than that person because I don't eat meat or whatever it is that they were practicing. But by doing that, it was actually taking them further away from Jesus because they were so focused on the rituals. The other thing I want to point out is when Paul says in that very first part of the verse, 16, he says, let no one judge you. Let no one judge you in food or drink. I don't think we have that problem. I'm not so sure that we have that problem that we're so strict on our observances that people are starting to judge us. But what I will say is, I think many of us, especially those that have grown up in church, have a problem with judging other people that don't do certain things that we expect them to do. So here's the thing. If we expect people to come to know Jesus, if we expect people to get saved and start coming to church, we have to stop judging people. Like it's ridiculous. I mean, some of the things that we do, some of the things that you do, and some of the things that I have done, really, I think, are not glorifying to the Lord. In that what we do is a person who's not a believer comes into youth group and starts, you know, cursing or whatever, and they're like a spectacle, like that kid curses. And he's in church. He doesn't know. Or maybe they're not dressed appropriately or something like, oh my gosh, that person, they didn't get the memo. It's like, we don't want to transform people's physical appearance, outward appearance. We want to transform their hearts. So why are we going to like educate that person and like, really, if you want to come to church, you got to stop cursing. If you want to come to church, you got to stop smoking cigarettes. You got to stop, like, why are we going to do that to people? Because if the message is all about Jesus and having them transform their hearts, and if we really believe the gospel, which is all you have to do to get to heaven is believe on Jesus and you will be saved. If that's what we believe, then why are we going to impose rules on people that we don't even believe in? And some of you know for a fact that you don't even hold yourselves to the same standard. When, I, when someone else curses in church, it's like, oh, that person's a sinner. And then when you curse, it's justified because, you know, it was a mistake, it was a slip up. It happened once. You'll see on Instagram someone publicly posts something they probably shouldn't have posted or on Twitter or whatever, social media. Most of those kids block me by now, but kids that go to this school or people that go to this church and they'll use false language. And listen, like the thing that's harmful or hurtful, I don't know. The thing that like disappoints me is like some of the people that I'll be closest with, that have graduated or whatever, are the same people that like block me on social media. And it's like, I visit you in the hospital. I love you. I wouldn't, like, I could care less what you say. I could care less what you do. Like, I care for you. I don't want to see you hurt yourself. But I'm not going to judge you because of that. And it's harmful to me because I know that they're feeling shame about what they do, and that's why they block me. But the point for you is, listen, like, if I see you do something stupid on social media, I'm just going to think it's stupid, but I'm not going to think you're stupid. I'm going to think that what you've done is wrong because the Bible says it's wrong, but that doesn't mean I'm going to think that you're a lesser person. Because the fact of the matter is, I did stupid things when I was your age. I did some things worse than probably you've done too. And yet God has saved me by his grace. So I don't think I'm a perfect person. Like, I don't curse now. Like, I, I don't go around just, like, doing stupid things, right? I don't go out partying and drinking. Because God has sanctified me. But when people are in process, we got to give them some space. We need to give them some time to make that change in their life, you know? And, and here's the thing. People will have different timetables on when that happens. Some people, it takes a little bit longer. I remember, I'll never forget, like, um, when I was a youth leader in junior high, this was, I don't know, I was probably 20, I used to do video blogs for uh, my band. 
And all that video blog, I remember, like, I posted something that probably I shouldn't have posted. It wasn't like, I didn't say anything bad, but it was like one of those things that you probably shouldn't say on a video. And especially if you have youth group kids watching it. So it's just one of those jokes that probably wasn't appropriate for this, the time of the season, whatever. And so I posted it online, and what, I was just like, whatever. I didn't really think too much about it. And then Andy Dean, who's, you know, the person who, who was the youth pastor at the time, he comes up to me. All he has to say is, so I watched your video blog. Do you think that's something you should probably have up? I was like, nope. He's like, okay. And he walked away. And I felt so terrible for like a month. I was just like, why did I do that? Why did I post that? It was so stupid, you know? So like, I've done stupid things. You do stupid things. We'll get over it. Thank God that he doesn't judge us on the stupid things that we do when we've accepted him into our hearts as our Lord and Savior. So the point being, since people are in process, we need to give people a lot more grace when they do stupid things. When you post things online that you shouldn't post, when you say things that you shouldn't say, when you gossip about people, can we just give people the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what? They are a sinner and they make mistakes. I do too. It actually says in Ecclesiastes somewhere, it's like when you hear someone gossip about you, before you judge them, you should actually watch yourself because you know you do the same things to other people. So I can find you the reference for that later. I forgot the reference off the top of my head. But the point being, if we are not going to let other people judge us according to food or drink, Sabbaths, festivals, rituals, let's stop judging other people. Listen, if you don't read your Bible, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to try to help you in that process if you're willing. But I'm not going to be like, oh, I thought they were a good Christian, but I found out they only read once a month. Like, I'm not going to do that. You're teenagers. You're growing in the Lord. And that's what you should be doing. If you tried, like, if you've been trying to read your Bible, that's amazing. And you're going to make progress, and we're here to help you. So let's go to verse 18 um, and see what's next. So verse 18 says this. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So remember, in the Colossian heresy, what they would actually tell you is like, there's these super Christians, these super people that would be able to experience God in a new way because they would actually be able to go into like these pagan temples and they would see these visions and they would come back and be like, I've been to heaven. And when they said that, they would like start boasting about it and saying like, oh, I saw these angels, I saw what they looked like. And they started worshiping angels and started chasing after all these like cool little things that like no one really knew about. And so they're like, well, the Bible tells us one thing, Jesus taught us one thing, and then these people are saying something else. But how do you know that what these people are saying isn't true? Because it seems like they had a, a real religious experience. And so this is kind of like a modern-day equivalent might be like in Mormonism, a guy, Joseph Smith, said that he went off somewhere in the middle of the woods and an angel named Moroni visited him and said, here are golden tablets. And it, he revealed himself only to Joseph Smith and told him to write the Book of Mormon and all these crazy things like the Jewish people are actually Native Americans and they moved from Israel all the way to America somehow a long time ago. So that's what the angels supposedly told Joseph Smith. And it was believable back then. It's a little bit harder now when you have signs. Um, but that's kind of the equivalent. Except back then, since they couldn't check it, they had no Google. They were just like, yeah, maybe these angels really did appear to these guys. And maybe they were able to see, see these visions. And they were chasing after those things, feeling like they missed out on an experience. And they have to be pursuing those things. But what Paul is saying is you don't have to do that. So 
thinking about this, when they talk about false humility, worship of angels, being puffed up in his flesh and the mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, right? I think about maybe a modern-day equivalent might be when we think about the really cool things in Christianity, like the miraculous things, the sign gifts, like the things that certain people talk about. You're just like, ooh, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that is. Like everyone's really interested in the people that have the near-death experiences. Everyone knows about like those movies where it's like the kid that goes to heaven, comes back, and it's just like, I got to see God. I got to meet Jesus. And, and we're like really interested in that, you know. We're interested in like the spiritual realm. And it almost feels like when you know somebody who has, you're just like really curious. Or sometimes it feels like that person's like on a different level or they're special. Or I remember when I was um, a junior in high school, a bunch of my friends went on this England mission trip, and I didn't, for whatever reason, I just felt like I wasn't called to go, so I didn't go. And that was the one trip where everyone had the experience. They went into the upper, literally, they went to an upper room. They met a guy who Joey Rozak, my youth pastor, believed was an angel. And they all sat around, and like the spirit, they said, fall, fell upon everybody, and they all started speaking in tongues and prophesying over each other, all this crazy stuff. And they all come back, and like, oh my gosh, best trip ever. Like, you already hate those people, right? But on top of that, it's like, best trip ever, and we all got the gifts of tongues, and we saw visions, and we had prophecies. It was amazing. And then, it, like, think about how terrible I felt. You guys know what it's like to not go on the mission trip or miss out on the retreat, and, like, everyone comes back. They're just, like, so tight-knit together. They're all, like, friends, and you're, like, just, like, mad that they're friends, you know? Like, that's how I felt, except, like, the next level, because they all had, like, this spiritual gift that I didn't have suddenly. I was like, God, why didn't you let me go on that trip? That's messed up. And for years, I was bitter. I was so mad. And then I would actually pray, like, Lord, give me the gift of tongues. If you want to give it to me now, that'd be awesome. And I never got it. And there's a part of us that can envy those things and chase after those things. And what's interesting is many of those people today that had that experience are not walking with the Lord. Unfortunately. There are, some of them are, some of them aren't. And what I learned is I can't base my faith on my experience. And not only that, but here's the other thing, and this is your second point for the evening, that true growth is not seen in your gifts, it's seen in your fruit. True growth in the Lord is not in your gifts, it's in your fruit. It's not the special abilities that you have from God that makes you like the second tier Christian or something. But the question is, you are, a, uh, are you a mature believer by having fruit in your life, being able to see things that God has actually done? The Corinthian church was a perfect example of this because if you remember, there are three chapters of the Bible dedicated to the fact that the Corinthian church was full of gifts but did not have a lot of fruit. So chapter 12 talks about like these crazy things are happening in your church. I'm hearing all these crazy things about tongues, prophecy. You guys sound like you're out of your mind. You need to calm down. In chapter 13, what does he say? It's the love chapter. Why does he say that? Because he says, you can have to get the tongues, but if you have not love, it profits you nothing. You become like a clanging cymbal or sounding brass. That's the whole point of why Paul wrote those three chapters, because they're so focused on the gifts and not focused on the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, Self-control. I probably missed one there. I don't know how I did that. I thought it was a Christian. But you know the fruit is the things that you should be showing as an example of God is working in your heart. So let me ask you the question. 
Instead of asking yourself, do I have the gift of tongues? Do I have the gift of prophecy? Do I have all these things? Ask yourself, do I have love? Because that determines whether or not I'm actually growing in Christ. And here's the thing. I'm not singling anybody out, but I know like generally this is happening in the youth group right now. What Satan would love to do is as we are growing as a youth group, like right now there's probably like five events going on and there's like more and more people coming. A lot of new believers coming. It's great. It's awesome. But I know more than anything, there's a lot more drama going on. There's a lot less people here in the room that used to be in the room because of gossip, because of relationship problems, because of all these different things. And I have to ask you and I have to ask myself, is it because we have not grown in love? Is it because we're not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ? And by that, by holding fast to Jesus, that's how we grow as a body of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it to see a person not feel welcome here? Is it worth it for, for you perhaps to not feel welcome here because of these petty arguments we have, which could seem like big deal, big, uh, it could seem like a big deal to you, but in light of eternity, it probably will not matter. It just won't. Like when it's a relationship issue, you got to ask yourself, in 10 million years, will I care about this? No, like actually 10 million years, you will probably not as we live for eternity. Now when we have things like gossip, when people badmouth each other, that is a serious issue. And I know that it's a struggle for many of you as I've been the target of that in my life. But is it worth it to keep us from meeting with God? Why was Jesus so upset when he went into the temple and people were selling and stealing people's money. Was it just because people were stealing their money? Or was it because there were people that were preventing ordinary poor people from worshiping the Lord? The reason why Jesus got so angry and overturned those tables in the temple is because there were people that were saying, well, in order to worship God, you have to pay us a certain amount of money. In order to worship God, you have to get the gifts that we have. And the land that you brought isn't good enough. And, and so they were, they were doing those things. They were manipulating them. But more than that, they were preventing people from being able to approach God. And there's nothing that God hates more. Or I should say, there are few things that God hates more than seeing people prevented from worshiping him because of what the enemy has done. That's why Jesus came into the world. To abolish sin and death. The last great enemy. So do we want to become an enemy of God blocking someone's worship? Hopefully not. And hopefully we've been, we've been convicted enough to say, I want to grow in love and I want to restore that person. And so maybe that's you tonight. And maybe what you have to do is think about how can I reconcile? How can I go up to that person and ask for forgiveness? How can I seek forgiveness from somebody else for the things that I've done and I've let get in the way of my worship or that other person's worship from God? But maybe you're thinking, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get into a place where I feel that love for somebody else or there's, you know, there's just so much drama or division or whatever. And I think Jesus explains to us the path to get to that fruit. How do you, how do you display that fruit in your life? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So he says this. He says that since he is the vine and we are the branches, the only thing that you need to do to bear fruit is literally stay attached to him. Abide in him. Remain in him. Don't depart. Don't do anything else. Just stay close to Jesus. And by doing that, you will naturally bear fruit. There's no branch on the face of the earth, I guarantee you, 
that's sitting around right now thinking, I need to bear fruit. I need to bear fruit. Ah. And he's like struggling. The poor little branch. I'll call him Bobby. Bobby the branch. Who's just sitting there and he's just like, if I don't bear fruit, there's going to be a guy that sees like, oh, you worthless apple tree. I'm going to cut you down and chops him down because he's not bearing fruit. Instead, all that Bobby the branch needs to do is stay attached to the vine and it will naturally bear fruit. I love what a pastor, Tim Chaddock, said about abiding. He said a good example of abiding is like a tea bag. What do you have to do to make really good tea? You just take a tea bag and you just let it steep in water. You don't do anything. You just take the tea bag, stick it in hot water, and it will automatically, by abiding, produce tea. So us as believers, here's what we need to learn. Sometimes forgiveness takes time. Sometimes that position of our heart of love for our enemies takes time. But we at least have to be willing to say, God, I can't forgive this person, but can you forgive them for me? Can you teach me what that means? And you start praying for your enemies. That's why Jesus said that. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Because when you love them, you just go out and do it, your heart will follow. It's the same principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. And as you pray and as you love, you just act out and love. Those emotions, those feelings will come with it as well. But if you don't see the immediate results, like you come to youth group and you're like, I tried forgiving them and it's over. It's like, okay, you're a human being. It takes time. And they will take time as well. And when we don't see the, them automatically transform, we have to be willing to say, you know what, maybe it's going to take a little bit of time before they grow in the Lord as well. But you at least have to be willing. Our third point is seen in verse 20 this evening. So he says this. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So now he goes back into this legalism where what they're saying is, um, in order to really be accepted by God, in order to really experience the fullness of life, you need to adhere to these strict physical regulations. Don't touch certain things. Don't handle certain things. Uh, do not touch certain things. Don't taste certain things. He tells them to do these strict physical observances so that you're able to somehow be closer to God. And then what Paul is saying is like, how does that bring you closer to God? By the strict physical observances. He says, actually, when you've died to these regulations with Christ, you no, you no longer have to live with, by those rules. Instead, you're free to love the Lord and to live for him instead. So what he's telling us here is not that you don't have to obey the rules, but when you live for the Lord, it's not about the do nots anymore. Our third point for this evening is that we have been given a new law, and a new law is love. We've been given a new law, and that is love. So Whenever you think about Christianity, at least from the world's perspective, many people think of Christianity as a bunch of rules and regulations. And that's why people don't want to become Christians. They're like, oh, man, if I become a Christian, I'll have to give up smoking. I'll have to stop cursing. I'll have to stop drinking. I'll have to stop hanging out with certain friends. People already know there are certain things they are doing which are bad, and they have to stop doing those things. But when you look at Christianity from that perspective, you miss the whole point. Instead of thinking all the things that you can't do, think about the things you get to do because you follow the Lord. And that's why we've said many times 
anytime God says no to something, it's because he said yes to something else. And when you say no to premarital sex, you get to say yes to sex inside of marriage, which will be that much more glorious because you've saved yourself for one person rather than continually giving yourself and experimenting with certain people that are always going to rob things from you and never be able to give you anything that really will last. So what God is saying is not, I'm trying to steal your joy. He says, I've come to give you life and that much more abundantly. He's come to fulfill your joy. And by living for the Lord out of love, we automatically fulfill the law. And that's why Jesus said this. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. People made up all these different commandments on top of those commandments. But Jesus says you can fulfill all those commandments, all the do nots, by this. Love God and love people. By doing that, you complete everything else. Because ultimately what sin is, is when you're departing from the love of God or departing from the love of other people. And you're selfish. You love yourself. And that's why you do what you want to do. But as Christians, as believers, we should stop asking ourselves, what am I allowed to do? And start asking ourselves, how can I please the Lord? And by doing that, we will be able to fulfill all those laws and those regulations anyway. So it goes back to that, that sense of like, well, Christians are not allowed to drink. So if you drink and you're a Christian, you're a sinner. I don't drink, but this is what I'll tell you. I know certain Christians that do drink. I think they're wrong. I think they shouldn't, but I still love them. And what I'm not going to do is campaign for the rest of my life as why alcohol is a sin. I'm not going to go up to people and be like, well, I know alcohol is not a sin, but drunkenness is a sin. You're probably going to get drunk. I'm not going to make that like my banner. I'm not going to make that my theme. I'm not going to go up to people and that, that's really the only thing we're going to talk about. But there are many people that's literally all they talk about is like how certain things are sin. They'll tell you how there's like bad theology out there and they're just, they go on a hobby horse and that's all they talk about. Those people are not fun. Instead, when you're so wrapped up with Jesus, you discard those things naturally. You don't want to do those things anymore because God has touched your heart and you want to please him. And so I think it goes back to the question, too, of, like, whenever you're, like, thinking about the things that you're not allowed to do, it's like, shouldn't Christianity cost you something? It doesn't need to. Like, it, you, don't have to, you don't have to do things in order to be accepted by God for sure. But out of love for God, shouldn't you give up certain things? Just like if you love your spouse, wouldn't you naturally turn away from certain things? Like, if you were married and your wife told you or your husband told you, you know, I really appreciate it if we spent more time in conversation at night rather than watching TV. You probably would be okay with, hopefully, turning off the TV every now and then. Right? Because you love that person and it's not because, oh, man, I don't get to watch TV. It's like a human being is more fun than TV. Hopefully you believe that. Unless you're like a nerd or something. So it's no longer about the do nots. It's about the things that we get to do. Lastly, we see in verse 23... It says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the last point, and we'll close with this. It says, it says, I wrote this down. <laughs> last point is this. No safeguard can keep you from choosing to sin. No safeguard can keep you from choosing to sin. So when you're thinking about legalism... Once again, being accepted by your works rather than accepting Jesus into your heart, what he has done for you, his work on the cross. Whenever you have legalism, what happens is people will start thinking like, 
well, if I don't obey these rules, then I'll start sinning. Or I need to do these certain things or I'm going to fall into sin. Or I need to put these certain safeguards and hedges. Those things are great. But you can't expect that to keep you from sinning. I'll give you an example. Many people, when they fall into sin in one area, perhaps lust, they start to put up things, safeguards in their life and have accountability. Accountability is great. Every single person should have accountability. But here's the thing. Accountability will not keep you from sinning. If you have a drug problem and you are used to smoking marijuana, you can have safeguards. You can have accountability. Like, can you check up on me to make sure that I don't have any marijuana in my house, whatever. But, like, if you, at the end of the day, want to go out and smoke weed, you will do it. It's like the question of, why do you have locks on doors? Have you ever thought about that? Why do people have locks on doors? And most people will say, well, you have locks on doors to keep out bad people. I got news for you. If a bad person wants to get in your house, he's going to get in your house. It doesn't matter if there's a lock on it or not. The point of the lock is to keep basically bad people from making stupid decisions. And that's the point for you and I. Accountability is not to keep you from sin. It's to keep basically good people that want to follow the Lord from making dumb decisions. So a safeguard like if you're in a relationship, you should have safeguards. You should not be out with a member of the opposite sex at 2 in the morning. And she's like, oh, well, we're here alone at 2 in the morning just because, just because, you know, we're free in Christ and we can do what we want. That's called stupidity. Don't do that. But here's the thing. You can't think, well, me and my girlfriend, we're always, uh, we're never together alone, number one. And number two, anytime we're hanging out, if it's 9 o'clock, we make sure that we skedaddle and we get home right away. You can say that, but guess what? Just because you're home at 9 o'clock doesn't mean that you're not going to sin. Doesn't mean that you're not going to fall into lust. If you want to sin, you will find a way to commit your sin. So as Christians, what does that mean for us? Because this is what Paul is saying. He says, these things, these regulations can impose false humility, neglect of the body, but there's no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So people will deprive themselves of certain things, and they're like, I'm a, I'm a pretty righteous guy because I don't practice the things like those people do. But ultimately, you could sin at any point in time that you want to, if you wanted to. And it sounds like rocket science, but here's the thing. If I wanted to ruin my life, I could today do it. If I wanted to stop being a youth pastor, I could go out right now. I could just go get drunk somewhere and just do something stupid. It's like as easy as that. I'm not going to. I could if I wanted to. Now, I could say, well, I just don't want to do those things, so I'm going to make sure I have accountability in my life. That does not do anything. But for the believer, the reason why you have that accountability is once again to keep you as you are growing in the Lord from making stupid decisions in a moment of weakness. So the question then is, well, then if those things don't really keep me from sin, how do I stay away from sin? It goes back to abiding in the vine, holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Because if you chase down these certain things, like, listen, reading your Bible is amazing. It's great. You should do it. Praying is great. You should do it. But you can't expect just because you read one passage of the Bible every single day that you're going to stop sinning. Your heart behind it has to be to meet with Jesus. Because if this becomes a textbook to you and it becomes a chore to you, you will become an expert on the Bible and miss out on a relationship with Jesus. There are scholars that are uh, specialized in the Old Testament and New Testament and are not Christians. Those people exist at universities. How do they get there? It's because they've made this into a mechanical thing and they haven't met with the person of Jesus. So the point being, of all of this, why we're talking about this tonight, 
besides the fact that this is in uh, the passages that we're reading at this time, I think what the Lord would have for us today is to remember the thing that we're supposed to focus on this year amidst, among everything else that we do, is to make sure that we're meeting with Jesus in the things that we do. Our works should always lead us to Jesus. Not just be things that we do for God, but do things with God. If we go evangelizing, which hopefully we'll do as we approach vertical identity, the evangelism should not just be out of guilt. It should be out of like that pure heart of, Lord, I want to see people come to know you. If we reconcile with one another, it shouldn't be, well, I'm supposed to. It should be out of, out of the fact that you're, you have gratitude because God has touched your life and you know that you're a sinner and you want to forgive other people as well. You don't want to see people hurt. You don't want to see people in 10 years and be like, man, why did I ever let that petty argument get in between us two? You want to let those foolish things happen and then wind up, you know, 10 years down the road being like, man, I wish that didn't happen. I think I've told you this before. I'll share it one more time and we'll close with this. I had a friend when I was 16. I used to sleep over his house every single week. Like literally we were best of friends. And then out of nowhere, he just kind of blew up on social media against me. Like he was just sending me these messages, all caps, rants, saying how nobody likes you, everybody hates you. Uh, the only, only reason why we hung out is because we pitied you because you have no friends. Like, you said terrible, nasty things. Like, I, as a 16-year-old man who was, like, gangster at the time, had, like, my do-rag and my chain and, like, all that, I was crying like a baby because that was one of my closest friends. And the whole time, I had no idea that he had such bitterness against me. And because of that, like, 11, no, 12, I have to do math, 12 years later, I'm still not friends with him. But when I've seen him time and time again, because he doesn't live in the state anymore, when I've seen him, I'm just like, man, why did we let such a petty thing get in between that friendship? And I know he feels the same way. I think it was just a moment of weakness. We've never actually been able to sit down and talk about it. But I think it was just a moment of just like, he was just venting. But because I was so hurt and because he was so angry, I just let that get in between us. It's like, I could have had a really great friendship to this day, but we let something stupid happen. So don't let that be your story. You have the power to change it. It's like, is what I'm holding on to, is that bitterness that I'm holding inside my heart, is that worth it? Is it worth it for me to feel justified inside my heart? Like, they hurt me, I'm never going to talk to them ever again. Or are you willing to say, Lord, I don't want to hold on to it. I want to love you and I want to love other people because that's what you asked me to do. So let's bow our hearts and pray tonight.